0: How's it going, New Hope? Thanks for joining us for our online gathering. We're, we're grateful that you made time to be with us today. In, in 1992, some of you may remember and some of you just have heard about this, the city of uh, Sarajevo was under siege for four years. Uh, Serbian forces surrounded the city on the hillsides, bombing it, sniper fire. 14,000 people died uh, during those uh, four years. It's the longest siege of a capital city in uh, modern warfare. On uh, May 27, 1992, 22 people formed a line outside uh, one of the last bakeries that was operating. It was very risky for anyone to be outside, but they were willing to risk their life because they were hungry and uh, sadly they ended up giving their lives. A bomb exploded in the midst of them as they waited for bread killing all 22 and 100 people were injured it left a huge crater in the middle of downtown Sarajevo, Sarajevo and uh, in the marketplace area in the central area. Uh, Vidran Smalovich, he uh, was lived in the neighborhood and he he along with all the neighbors heard the explosion and when he felt it was safe came running out uh, to see what had happened and he was gutted as he saw 22 of his neighbors and friends uh, lying dead and many more uh, injured. Uh, It it just, it ripped him apart internally. He helped where he could and went back to the safety uh, of his apartment quickly. Uh, He did uh, what only he could do. He was deeply saddened by what was happening to his city, uh, but he had not lost hope. Uh, Vijan was the lead celloist at the Sarajevo Opera. And he, uh, the next day at four o'clock, the exact same time as the bombing the previous day, uh, emerged from his apartment. No one else was on the street because of sniper fire. And he was dressed in his uh, black tux, which he would wear to perform all over the world. In one hand, he had his cello. In the other hand, he had a simple folding chair. And he walked resolutely across the plaza to the rubble, to the large bomb crater, opened up his chair, and began to play. Uh, Vijan did this for the next 22 days to commemorate the lives of the 22 neighbors that were lost in that bombing. Then Vijan went on throughout the four years to play anywhere and everywhere there was destruction in his beautiful city. Uh, he played at funerals, and he played in graveyards. He played in other bomb craters. When I heard this story, I, I was like, that was struck by it. It's such an amazing story of courage, and, and hope. And I was thinking, this is what it looks like for followers of Jesus in our world to actually follow Jesus and to point forward in hope to one day when all things will be made right. And that's really the heart of this series we've been in for the last eight weeks that we've been calling uh, The Way Forward, Following Jesus in a Chaotic World. Granted, at least right now, Bombs aren't going off. We're not dealing with the mayhem that they were in Sarajevo. But it feels like that emotionally and eternally. It feels so chaotic and divisive, and there's so much anger and mayhem, and we're dealing with the pandemic and the rising death totals. In the midst of all that, we may not be optimistic, but as followers of Jesus, we can be hopeful. And I think we're called to do what we can to point people forward in hope. We're called to to play our cello in the rubble of our world. So we've given uh, seven practices, and this week we'll give an eighth practice, that as we practice these things as followers of Jesus, it will allow us to point people forward in hope. So quickly, as a review, all of these messages are online. If you missed some of them, Please go back and watch them. Uh, The practices we've talked about in week one were unplugging, we can't just go, go, go. We have to take breaks to be in the uninterrupted presence of God. Two, simplicity, we only have so much space in our hearts, let's clear out uh, all the small stuff that, that doesn't really matter and fill our hearts, the space in our hearts with the things that really do matter. Week three was beauty, we have to seek beauty to remind ourselves that God is good. Week four was gentleness. Uh, quiet strength that provides space for grace. Week five was doing anger well. There's good anger and there's bad anger. Good anger restores and it builds up and it doesn't tear down. Week six was Hannah talking about listening. We have obviously two ears and one mouth. We should be listening twice as much as we're talking. As we listen, it creates compassion and empathy for for the other. And then last week, we, we, we heard from Sky Jatani, uh, cultural guru, author, podcaster. And if you didn't have a chance to watch that, go back and watch my interview with Sky on how do we follow Jesus in a politically divisive world. And Sky laid out these paths. We often go the path of, of fight or the path of flight. Both are driven by fear. And Sky challenged us to walk the path of incarnation, just like Jesus did. So go check out what he said to us. It was wise and super helpful. And then here we are, we're in our last week and we are gonna talk about maybe the most important practice of all uh, to help us play our cellos in the rubble and that is the practice of enemy love. Uh, We would love to challenge you as you think through these eight practices and we continue to go through this chaotic time that we seek to not just survive but to thrive, that you think of one or two of these practices that when you heard the message and you thought about it and you're like, I could really use that in my life, that we would emerge from the series, taking one or two of these practices and beginning to weave them into the rhythm of our life. So here we go, let's dive into the last practice, the practice of enemy love, and Tyler will be reading our scripture for us, uh, Take It Away. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, "'Love your neighbor and hate your enemy.' But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. So you may have heard uh, that scripture before. That's from um, Matthew's Gospel, one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And that is from what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. That's Jesus's, really his inauguration speech. So. When somebody comes into power and they're elected uh, and someone will be giving this in in January, they'll give an inauguration speech. They're really telling us what their rule, what their time of, of, of governorship will look like. They're painting a picture of what they hope will come. And that's what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. He's painting a picture for us of this reality that is coming, coming through his death and resurrection of the kingdom of God, as he would call it, or the kingdom of heaven, a totally different type of experience and way of life. As he lays these things out in the Sermon on the Mount, we don't have to do these things to enter the kingdom. He's talking about the qualities and the way of life in the kingdom. People in the kingdom will live like this. They will look like this. So, the passage that Tyler just read gives us one of those snapshots. Throughout the whole sermon, there's these six statements that form the foundation of Jesus' sermon. And they're all, you can see them when you start to look for them, they're all phrased the same way. And Jesus, it's phrased this way. Jesus will say, you may have heard it said, and then he'll state something that is a common way of doing life, a non-kingdom way of life. But I tell you, Jesus will say, and then he gives them and paints this picture, this hopeful picture of what's coming. So that happens six times, and those kind of form the underpinnings of the Sermon on the Mount. He addresses with those six statements, murder, lust, divorce, oaths, and retaliation. Right before the passage you just heard, we heard the fifth one. And you may have heard this before. Uh, as an example, he said, you have heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus is like, this is just the way it work, the world works. You've heard it said this way. We kind of live this way. But I tell you to turn the other cheek. So he's painting a picture of what life in his kingdom will look like, how, how, how different it will be, how radical it will be to the present way of living. So then we come to the sixth one and we heard the same a formula here. And Jesus lays out the sixth and final one, and I will argue the most important one, the one that most marks the life of a follower of Jesus and inhabitant of the kingdom, this idea of enemy love. So Jesus starts and he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and and hate your enemy. So kind of two phrases here. And so this is, Jesus is like, you know what this looks like. We all think this way is kind of the idea. The first is a quote of Leviticus 19, 18, something all of his Jewish listeners would have known. We refer to it as the golden rule, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. All Jewish people would have known this. Non-Jewish people probably were very familiar with this. A little bit of a backdrop, the Jewish people, the religious leaders had codified the Old Testament law into 613 commands. On top of that, they had taken each of those commands and added a bunch of other commands and stipulations. Jesus called this way of life burdensome to the people. Jesus never rejected the Old Testament and the law. He was fulfilling it. Jesus rejected adding a bunch of burdens and stuff to it. Instead of adding, Jesus did the exact opposite. He summed up the law in two commands, and maybe you know them. He summed them up in these two commands, uh, love God. And love others. The the love of God comes from the Shema in Deuteronomy six, and the love others comes from Leviticus nineteen eighteen. What he quotes in our passage. Now, what Jesus is trying to do in this passage, this view of the kingdom that's coming, he's going to try to expand th- their understanding of Leviticus nineteen eighteen. They didn't get it. They didn't really understand how radical it was to love others, and so that's what that's what's going on there. That's what Jesus is working with. So some of the backdrop here, um, we we know the first statement, but then we don't really know what Jesus is referring to when you said you heard it said, uh, hate your enemy. Nowhere in scripture does it explicitly command us to hate our enemy. So we don't think Jesus is quoting scripture, but we think that he is kind of quoting or summing up the mindset of the typical person that would have been listening to him they likely would have all been just nodding when Jesus said, hey, you heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's the way we live. That's the way we understand things. Even Jewish people, I would argue, especially Jewish people. Jewish people had gotten to the place where they had become experts at defining their neighbor in a very narrow frame. And they would define their neighbor as essentially people who looked like them and thought like them and acted like them, or really just people they liked. They would define their neighbor not only as Jews, but Jews like them. So when they heard that, like, love your neighbor, they thought of it as a very narrow command, and Jesus is trying to blow that up and and explode that. We see this played out in a very familiar passage. Even if you're not too familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Jesus is trying, in in this passage as well, to expand their idea who their neighbor was. If you remember that, there's a religious uh, expert, a lawyer, who's asking Jesus, Jesus, can you sum up the law for us? And Jesus, as he often did, turned the question back on the religious expert, and the religious expert answered accurately. He answered in accordance of how Jesus had been teaching to love God and love others. Jesus commends him and says, Well done. Way to go. Then the legal expert says, but, and here's the million dollar question, but who is my neighbor? The legal experts trying to get Jesus on his team to kind of narrow the definition of neighbor to people that look like him, thought like him, acted like him, people that he liked. And Jesus wasn't going to play that game. Jesus did the exact opposite. So Jesus answers his question with a story. That story is the good Samaritan. And in that that story, we learned there's no limits for who our neighbor is. In fact, our enemy is even our neighbor. And Jesus brilliantly makes the hero of the story an enemy of most of the Jewish people, uh, the Samaritans. So he's doing the same thing here in our text. So Jesus said, you've heard it said, Love your neighbors, hate your enemy. Yep, yep, yep. The people are nodding along. They're with him. That's, that's as easy as the air we breathe, Jesus. We're, we're all on the same page. Now Jesus messes with them. And if we understand what he's saying, he messes with us as well. He says, but I tell you, now that's, that's the code for it. I'm about to tell you how things are gonna be in my kingdom. If you wanna follow me, the type of life you'll be entering into. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you uh-oh <laughs> that's of what everybody's thinking that's if we really understand what jesus said. that's what we should be thinking right after that in verse 45 jesus grounds this type of radical enemy love in the love of god jesus said this is how god loves jesus used the illustration that that god the, 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 the sun and the rain falls on everybody the good and the evil the righteous and the unrighteous Uh, God's love is indiscriminate. It's not prejudicial. Uh, God uh, God warms and waters everyone. That's the type of love God has. There's no limits to the love of God. And if we follow Jesus and we enter the kingdom of God, that's how we're also called to love. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Here's the deal. This isn't an option. This is not an optional way in kingdom life. This is a prerequisite. This is this is w- w- what life will be like in His kingdom. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be part of His kingdom, we have to display enemy love. I, w- I would I would argue this is one of the most important practices of followers of Jesus, and one of the most clarifying practices. What I mean by that is, think of all the practices we've talked about in this series, and there's many more out there for followers of Jesus we can fake most of those practices. Let's just be honest. We can fake most of them. You can't fake enemy love. And it is the mark, I would argue, of true followers of Jesus. So let's, let's break it down. I think to, words are important. We, we have this gap between when Jesus spoke and when we're hearing. So let's talk a little bit about the word enemy and a little bit about the word love so we can really understand uh, this command to practice enemy love. So the word enemy in the Greek, is really similar to the way we use it. It's, uh, it, it certainly uh, applied to military enemies in the classic sense, but also religious, political, personal is a broad term. One Greek source said it implied irreconcilable hostility proceeding out of personal hatred bent on inflicting harm. Simply put, an enemy was someone that, that, that people didn't love. <laughs> the idea to love your enemy to Jesus' listeners, to our ears is weird, to their ears it was absurd. To them, uh, an enemy was the very opposite of a neighbor. So love your neighbor, yes, um, but love your enemy, what? That's the very opposite. So a neighbor for them, again, to remind us, is someone who, who looked like them, thought like them, acted like them. A neighbor was somebody they liked. An enemy was the opposite, someone who didn't look like them, think like them, act like them, someone that they did not like. I will suggest that the gap between their understanding of enemy and our understanding is not far at all. I would would argue it's very close. The etymology of the English word and the Greek word are very close, but I think how we've come to view the idea of enemy is very close in parallel to how Jesus's listeners in the first century came to think of it. No longer do we think of our enemy as like the Nazis or the Communists—you know—the classic enemies. I think very much we have come to think of enemies as people who 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 don't look like us, or think like us, or act like us. Our enemies are people we 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 don't like. I think that that when we think about loving our enemies, we have the same guttural response that Jesus's first audience did, of like. That's kind of absurd. I, I, how do you, how do you like someone or how do you love someone that you don't even like? So I think that when G, the same dissonance that his listeners are feeling, we feel as well, and we struggle with it, which is helpful as we get into practicing it. I I think that it's fair to say I will just put this forth in humility that the American church and maybe the global church, but certainly the American church. Um, is very similar to the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day. The the American church, we seem to have become experts at enemy making, uh, at at othering people, of making them the other, people that don't look like us, think like us, act like us, people that we may not like, they're the enemy and we become experts at it. And that's deeply sad. Uh, American uh, theologian author David Fitch says it really well in his book, Us Versus Them. This is a little bit longer quote, but it's so spot on, so so listen closely. Fitch says this. We cannot help but make enemies in the way we do church in North America. As Christians, we have become blind to the antagonisms at work in our lives, both within the church and without. The word enemies speaks to the way of the world that others the persons we disagree with. This is what defines an antagonism, the making of an enemy by turning someone into an other. The world runs on antagonisms, what I call the enemy-making machine. It's a social dynamic in which we are always forced to take sides. We then define ourselves against someone via a position. Our identity becomes attached to this position. Our motivations and desires get aligned with this position. We start to defend ourselves at all costs. Our joys and sorrows become strangely formed around what happens day by day in the success of our position before we know it we are stuck in this position permanently ensconced in the violence of the world and in doing so ideology comes into being and we are thoroughly buying into it it's a sobering quote and maybe you distance yourself from that and say i don't think the church is doing that or i don't do that great praise god for that I will argue that that I think that many of us fall into this, myself as well. To people that don't look like us, think like us, act like us, we begin to make them enemies. How do we know if we're getting caught up in this enemy-making machine? Fitch would say a couple different ways. One is, he said, if we get just even a tiny little bit of glee if we see our enemies, people that are different than us, failing or being defeated. He said, that's a really good indication we're starting to do enemy-making. He said another indication, and this is humbling, is when we look at people that are different than us, that, that look, think, act different than us, and we look at them in this kind of a little bit of a judgmental air, and deep in our minds, we never say it out loud, but deep in our minds we say, thank goodness I'm not like them. And if that quote sounds familiar, <laughs> that's, that's the tax collector the story that Jesus told the tax collector praying in the synagogue and what he said, or, or the, uh, sorry, the religious leader praying in the synagogue, the Pharisee, and what he says about the tax collector. Thank God I'm not like him. And Jesus says, no. These are just little evidences that we're getting caught up in this enemy making machine. Many followers of Jesus, uh, many churches seem more fueled by, by creating enemies, than loving enemies. And that should be deeply disturbing to us. So a question just for you to ponder. You don't, you don't have to put, or please don't put your answer in the comments. But it's a question for you to ponder. Uh, who is your enemy? And, and and don't think of enemy like, again, like the Nazis and the Russians and stuff like that. Think of it li- like this way. I think that we're beginning to, to use the word. P- people that, that look different than us, think different than us, act different than us, people that you may not like. Who Who is your enemy? Answering that question will, will, will tell you a lot about yourself and we can't obey Jesus's commands until we begin to answer that question. If I were to wager a bet on how many of you are answering in your mind and heart, <clears throat> at least by surveying how we're doing life as a culture and a church, our enemies are often the people, as Fitch said, that hold the opposite position on something. So in the political realm, I mean, we're right there, right? V- votes happening soon. If you're a Republican and a staunch Republican, your enemies are the Democrats and the people that represent them. Or if you're a Democrat and and, and that's more y- y- your deal then the Republicans and the people that speak for them are the enemies. Um, if if you're if you're like really passionate and on board with the racial uh, justice conversation then somehow we're told that we, we have to be enemies of, of law enforcement. And if you believe in law and order and law enforcement, somehow we're told we have to be enemies of those seeking racial, it's just absurd. It's even gotten into like a mask, who would have ever thought, right? If you're like pro mask, you're like somehow enemies now, people that, that maybe aren't as much into mask. And if you're anti mask, you're enemies, it's madness. It's simply madness that we've gotten to this place that we make enemies so quickly and that followers of Jesus and the church are at the epicenter of that enemy-making machine. It must stop. But there's hope, and the hope is our practice today. The hope is this radical practice that Jesus laid out of enemy love. So what is love? I think this is probably even more important to define enemy. enemies, Jesus says, love your enemies. What does that mean? Love is such a misconstrued word, especially in the American language where we have like one, one word for love. In the Greek, they had multiple. We love donuts and we love people, right? <laughs> there's, there's like differences here. There's, there's nuances. So I'm, I just started my doctorate under a scholar named uh, Dr. Scott McKnight. And I think some of you are familiar with that. So I'm just super blessed to be doing that. I'm just at the beginning of it. So I don't know anything yet. Uh, but Scott's a historian and a scholar and One of the things I love about Scott is his definition of love. He spent his life really mulling over and studying what is biblical love. So let me give you Scott's definition of love. I think it's illuminating. Scott said biblical love is a rugged commitment to be with other people, to be for other people, and to grow together in Christ's likeness. So let's break that down. And it's long because it needs to be because it's a nuanced word. So the first, love is a rugged commitment. There's a tenaciousness to love. Anytime we exhibit love, love comes after. Love doesn't break easily. Love is tethered to someone else. We see this in God's covenant relationship between God and Israel. Even when Israel ran from God, God ran after them. So love is a rugged commitment. Second, love is being Present with people. There's a presence to love. There's a there's a, a proximity to love. Love doesn't happen from a distance. And on the other side, it's really hard to hate somebody up close. And then finally, love is is being for someone else. We're intending the good of another. And you might say, "Well, what good are we intending?" Scott answers it: the good to be made into the image of Jesus, Christoformity or Christ likeness. So again, love is a rugged commitment to be with other people, to be for other people, and to grow together in Christlikeness. I think it's spot on. So now we better understand the command to love our enemies. Furthermore, we need to understand that biblical love is not an emotion. This is a big hurdle we have to get over. We think of love immediately as emotional, of, of ooey, gooey, touchy-feely, sentimental emotions of hearts and hallmark cards, and, and then we hear Jesus say, love your enemies, and we're like, ooh, like how's that even possible? And that would be weird, but that's not what biblical love is. Biblical love is not an emotion. It can be emotional, but it's not an emotion. Biblical love is action. It activates the will. It actually moves us to do something on someone else's behalf. It's not sending chocolates and flowers. It's, as Scott said, to a rugged commitment to be with people, for people, so that we may all be formed into Christ's likeness. Understanding this means that we can actually love people we don't like. Try that on for size. Ponder that. It's so, so radical. We we as followers of Jesus. We have been commanded to display enemy love. It's not an option. I would argue it it is one of the key distinguishing marks of true followers of Jesus. We can fake a lot of other things. We can't fake enemy love. It has to be fueled by the power of the Spirit and by God's grace. Jesus didn't just talk about enemy love. Jesus lived enemy love out. I think we know this, but it, it, it bears repeating On the cross, Jesus said, "'Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.'" On the cross, Jesus looked to a criminal beside him who had just been hurling insults, and in his conversation with Jesus, ushers him into the kingdom by grace. Jesus lived out this principle, and Jesus' followers lived out this principle. Stephen, you may know Stephen from the book of Acts, one of the early followers of Jesus, was stoned to death for, for professing faith in Jesus. At the time, who was overseeing that stoning? The apostle Paul, named Saul then. And what did Stephen say? Right as the stones begin to crush him and he was ushered in eternity, Father forgive them for they know that what they do. He's following in the path of Jesus as we're all called to follow into. He was exhibiting enemy love until his last breath and we're told that many Christian martyrs followed the same pattern in the first century. Paul told the Roman believers to bless those who persecute you. He told the Corinthian believers, bless those who curse you. He told the believers of Thessalonica to not return wrong from wrong, but to seek the good of all. Peter encourages believers to not repay evil with evil or insult for insult, but to repay evil with blessing. The earliest followers of Jesus took him seriously when he asked them to love enemies. Will we? Will we? Will we? Their their obedience to the command, I think, literally reshaped their world and was the foundation of the the early church in that movement that made its way throughout the entire world and revolutionized the Roman Empire. I'll say it like this. I think this is how it works. Enemy love transforms enemies into friends. I think that's the radical power of enemy love. Enemy love, if practiced, It transforms enemies, enemies, the people that don't uh, look like us, think like us, act like us, the people we don't like, it transforms them into friends. The early followers would say neighbors, but we use that term differently. I think it's more approximate to say friends. Uh, Jesus was given many labels by his opponents. Many negative things were said by him. The gospels are filled with these testimonies. But one of the the go-to lines that was used of Jesus was that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This was not a compliment. Tax collectors were despised as thieves and greedy people and traitors. Sinners was a t- term coined in those who were opposing God in his ways, who were unclean. So when people said that about Jesus, they were heavily criticizing him. They were like, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and yet Jesus was living out this idea of enemy love. Jesus understood that enemy love, love transforms enemies into actual friends. My, my friend uh, Scott Erickson is an artist and we've used his stuff before, he's, he's spoken at New Hope. Uh, there, there'll be an image that comes up on the screen, it's one of my favorite images that Scott's ever done, and he's done a lot of them, and I think in a picture, Scott captures this idea of enemy love and the and the transformational quality of enemy love. What what if what if what if we moved, Followers of Jesus and New Hope Church? What if we moved beyond enemy making to, to friend making? What if we were more known for, for not what we're against, but what what we're for? What, what, if, what if when people saw us? They thought those are the people that love anyone and everyone, not just people who look like them, think like them, and act like them. They even love people they don't like. Can you imagine the transformational quality that could occur in our city, in our community, in our world? What does this look like in real life? Let's maybe get beyond theory. What does this look like in real life? Uh, The Rwandan genocide took place uh, from April to July, 1994. It was, it was, it's one of the darkest stories I've ever read about or experienced in my lifetime or heard about. Um, if you're familiar with it, uh, tribal warfare broke out in Rwanda. There's two main tribes, uh, the Hutu and the, and the Tutsi tribe. And uh, they had always wrestled for power, but it kind of stayed at bay and, and ma- barely maintained order. And then a couple things happened, and, and it just unleashed all-out warfare and all-out genocide Uh, The the, the Hutu people had more of the military might and the power, and they went across the country openly slaughtering the Tutsi people and any Hutu people that were moderates who may have tried to protect the Tutsi people. Uh, It's estimated that that in 40 days, one million people were murdered and and slaughtered, Uh, 70% of the Tutsi population. Were killed, entire families, multiple generations. It was, it was just one of the darkest, most evil things we've ever seen uh, in history. Really, 25 years later, the country Rwanda has experienced remarkable, I would say even miraculous healing. And and how is that? Much of this is due to followers of Jesus. Much of this is this due to the church in Rwanda. Much of it is due to this this idea of intimate love. Um, Many years ago, Prison Fellowship, the the Christian nonprofit that serves prisons, uh, came into Rwanda with an idea of launching what they called transformation villages. And this idea took root and the Rwandan government got on board. They're looking for anything to bring hope and healing to the mayhem and the destruction and the bitter divides. Uh, the U.S. entered in and helped, and the UN and other Christian nonprofits in these transformation villages are formed. Uh, There's there six of them, and these transformation villages to to be to be part of it. Uh, it the one, they're made up of of victims of the genocide and perpetrators, half and half. I mean, right there, you're like, what? And to be part of the transformation villages, uh, as as a as a perpetrator, you had to publicly admit your crimes and asked for forgiveness, and most of them served decent pr- prison sentences, but their prison sentences were cut short, and they were allowed to enter these transformation villages. As victims, you had to be willing to grant forgiveness, which really every day. And so they populated these transformation villages with victims and perpetrators of the genocide. Right there, the story's remarkable enough that they would even give this a, a go. And furthermore, they made them work together. They required them to work together. They had to build homes together. They had to farm together. They had to eat together. They had to make meals together. They made crafts together. For the village to work, they had to work together. Uh, Author Pastor Danielle Strickland, I was listening to an interview with her the other day and she recounted on going on a world relief trip to one of these transformation villages and she met two of these remarkable individuals uh, one was grace she was a victim her entire family uh, was killed in the genocide she was the only one that survived and the other was her next-door neighbor a man named John a man who, who killed her family they're living next door to one another. And Daniel said she got to sit down with him and have a conversation. And it just, she said she didn't know what to do. It, it it startled her spirit. She was nervous. She was scared. At the end, she emerged incredibly hopeful for the world. She said that that uh that John told the story of, of being caught up in this madness over 40 days and and then the deep depression and going to prison. And every day he said he wanted to take his life. And then the prison was visited by a group of Rwandan followers of Jesus who had, who had been victimized in the genocide, coming to offer forgiveness. And he encountered the radicalness of the gospel. And his life was transformed to the point where he raised his hand when they said, does anybody want to be part of these transformational villages? And then he moves in next door to, to Grace. And, and as he's telling the story, Daniel said he couldn't finish he couldn't. He kept on crying and weeping, and she said there's this incredible moment where, where Grace reaches over and puts her hand on John and says, it's okay, I'm so glad you're here. Like, what? Grace talks about when they first entered the transformation village, and she knew who John was, and she knew what the arrangement was, but she said they were given plots of land beside each other, and then a joint stack of bricks from which they had to work together to build their home. And she said for days, as much as she attempted to forgive and fought to forgive and said she forgave, she couldn't make eye contact with this man that had slaughtered her family. And finally, one day, by the grace of God, she did. And she locked eyes with him, and she saw him. She was proximate. She was for him. She wanted redemption in his life and redemption in her life, in likeness. And she said a, a relationship was born. And then the, the interview ended, Daniel said, by her looking Daniel in the eye and saying, and now we're, what do you think she said, we're friends. We're not only friends, she said, but we're, we're family. Enemy love. Enemy love, it, it transforms enemies into friends. New Hope, if, if these folks could do it and it, 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 it could heal those kind of divides, we can do it. We don't have to be about the hatred. We don't have to be about the division. We don't have to be about the enemy making. We can be about friend creating. We too can step in and follow Jesus through the power of his spirit and practice enemy love. I think it's one of the reasons we can be hopeful even when we see the division, the mayhem around us. It's our way of of playing our cellos uh, in the rubble of our world. Here's here's your practice this week, Each, each week, and this will be your final one. We've given you eight practices. But here's the practice, and, and Jesus gives it to us. Uh, it, 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 the verse following, uh, the main one we've been considering. And, and Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There it is. That's our practice. Jesus tells us this is how we make this idea of enemy love a reality in our life. So here's your assignment, here's your challenge. I want you to think of an enemy. Don't don't take the easy road out and be like, you know, the communist or whatever, right? That's not what, what I think we're getting at here. Think of somebody that doesn't look like you, think like you, act like you. If you're struggling, just think of somebody you don't like. <laughs> that should be probably easy enough for most people. And then pray for them. Pray for them every day this week. I, over the last couple of years, I've I've tried my best to practice this and people that have hurt me or wounded me and that just happens in life, people that I don't like, um, I've, tried, I've tried to do what Jesus said and to pray for them. And often the first day or two, it's through gritted teeth and, and they're really short prayers. They're probably not great prayers. But I, I promise you, it is remarkable when you begin to pray for your enemies. It's so hard to hate someone that you're praying for. And as we practice this, I'm convinced we will become a church that is, that is no longer known for our enemy making. We'll be, as the song says, and you know the song, that they'll know we are Christians by our love. Let me pray. God, thanks for your goodness and grace. Thanks for the, the radicalness of, of enemy love. Um, it, it, it's clarifying. It's, uh, I don't even know the right word, God. It's startling. It confronts us uh, with how transformative it is. We can't uh, practice enemy love and also just keep on living the way we've been living. It it forces us to consider how we're living. It forces us to consider how we're seeing people. And God, may we increasingly not be seeing the other as, as enemies, but by your grace and through your power, may we begin to see them as we love them, As friends, do that transformational work in our heart this week, God. Even as I'm praying right now and people are wrestling with the challenge of of this message and and your words, uh, put someone on people's minds and hearts. Just right now, as I'm praying, God, just put someone on people's minds and hearts that they're meant to be praying for this week. Somebody that doesn't look like them or think like them or act like them. Someone that they've had a tendency to, to make the other someone that they may not like. Put someone on everyone's minds and hearts and give us a faithful commitment to pray for them earnestly this week, that we would love them, that we would have a rugged commitment to be present with them, to be for them so that we would all be formed in the image of your son for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said,